Lead from the Side is made possible thanks to our incredible sponsors. Hi, I'm Spencer Casimir, and this is Lead from the Side. Back in April, I had the opportunity to sit down with Raylene Castle. Raylene is best known for her leadership roles in rugby league and rugby union, along with netball and other high-performance sport. She is currently Group Chief Executive at Sport New Zealand and High Performance Sport New Zealand. We really got to go into depth on how she was able to overcome many challenges in each of these roles and what she's done since. I hope you learn as much as I did. Last time uh, we chatted, you were heading over to New Zealand. But in other things that are coming up, uh, you have the ICC Women's World Cup at semifinal stage. You'll be hosting the Women's Rugby World Cup in October this year. You're going to be co-hosting with Australia the FIFA's Women Football World Cup mid-next year. And just recently, you've come off a, I'm pretty sure that was the most successful Winter Olympics in New Zealand's history, as well as Paralympics. So you're busy. Yeah, well, the interesting thing about being an administrator is you actually, I'm not sure how busy um, you are when it comes to Olympic medals. That's uh, that's a chance uh, to really sit back and, you know, recognise that there's lots of people that touch those athletes that get to that stage. But um, yeah, it's it's certainly exciting. As you say, semi-finals completed, facing a final on Sunday. Uh, Australia, clearly an incredible story around women's sport, the Australian women's cricket team, and how they've matured and grown and taken fans um, on a journey uh, to uh, get involved with women's cricket. Hagley Park will turn it on, and uh, it's been a great event and, and really um, raised the profile of uh, women's cricket in this country. You know, and tying in women's cricket, their landscape to pull it, for pulling more and more women's talent towards rugby league, rugby union, and now also Australian rules football with their expanding landscape is quite challenging, though. would love to get your thoughts on uh, how we maintain talent in women's cricket as well as uh, netball now that there's that many more choices. Spencer, for me, there's a, a really clear baseline, um, and that is that you have to give the athletes the best possible chance to be the best athletes they can be. So the start point is coaching, um, nutrition, strength and conditioning, um, time to be able to dedicate to their um, their role or whatever sport that they've chosen to be part of. Then ultimately what follows is the commercial backing. And there is no better example than that than cricket, to the, to the point where, yes, they're not at the level of the men's yet, uh, but they're at a level where they can sustain very healthy and successful careers. Um, they've made some great decisions about bringing the boundaries in, about altering the game around the ball, weight and size. Um, and I'd really continue to encourage sports to think about that as they're trying to to develop the sport into a commercial place. Uh, and, um, you know, I'd really admire what cricket have done um, to get their, their sport to that level. Let's, let's talk about you, how you started and, and your story. Uh, sure. So I um, went to Auckland University, did a Bachelor of Commerce uh, in, um, interestingly, marketing and uh, manufacturing. The first opportunity that popped up was actually with Fuji Xerox and started off in marketing, um, went into sales, um, came out of there into some sort of more general management type roles, running teams. And so then, you know, from there, worked on a private venture, capital funded out a New York project to build a telecommunication submarine cable between Singapore and Sydney which was going great and was amazing until two planes flew into the World Trade Centre. Um, and the project literally collapsed within 48 hours. Um, so I went from employed in Singapore in a very, very large queue trying to get on a plane to get back to New Zealand uh, to having no job. You know, you have to pick yourself up and, you know, find the next opportunity. And 
Um, I did a number of sort of corporate roles, um, um, Southern Cross Healthcare, um, into BNZ, uh, credit cards, into uh, Spark or Telecom as it was then, but it's now called Spark, into a couple of different roles. Um, and then I was driving down the road and I heard that the CEO of Netball New Zealand had resigned. Was fortunate to get in the shortlist and then got appointed. And um, I walked in the front door and I felt like I'd come home. Yeah, found a place where I could bring my deep-seated passion and experience, personal experience and family experience for sport. Yeah, I just loved it and uh, had six years there. And um, it was uh, truly special to be part of something that took um, women's sport and put it on the mat trans-Tasman-wise and turned it into a semi-professional competition that was, um, you know, in, in everyone's homes um, for, for 16 weeks a year. So it was great. And that's the thing. You were the one who was there essentially joining in many ways, two different competitions between Australia and New Zealand. What, what, what's the story behind innovating that sort of, you know, work, work together strategy? Actually, a lot of that uh, consultation work was done before I arrived um, and with some great ladies who um, I'd call my good friends these days. And it was hard because uh, as I say, uh, you know, to people is it's like sleeping with the enemy. And that's quite a big leap because um, you know, to actually work together to form a joint venture company together, to actually bring together share sponsorship deals, share revenue, all of those things are really big challenges when you're in a joint venture. Um, one of the really smart things they did uh, was they had a six-person board, um, and so it was basically everything had to be negotiated and mediated to an outcome, which I think is a great learning and, and something that... Um, uh, was really smart in the way they they structured things um and you know it really did as i say took um you know many many um young women and made them household names but this is actually segueing really nicely and so what are the hurt what were the hurdles that didn't allow this to perpetuate any further and because we have two separate competitions now in netball yeah and i think um you know like everything it's all about the people isn't it and we call it um in new zealand here tangata here tangata here tangata which is it's all it's the people the people the people uh, and, you know, there was a change in personnel at Netball New Zealand, there was a change in personnel at, in, in Netball Australia, um, and ultimately um, there was some financial challenges for the competition, there was a disequal contribution from Australia and New Zealand, New Zealand had been the higher contributor of financial, um, the broadcast rights were coming out of New Zealand, so ultimately those, those big strategic decisions about what was right for two countries um, ended up being a big barrier and they decided to go back to two competitions. Um, you know, I, I personally really disappointed about that. I think there was a lot of work and um, to get to that stage. And, you know, even now, when you think about the competitive landscape of um, AFLW and um, NRLW and the like, um, they don't have genuine transsexual competition. So that could have been a you know, unique selling point for netball. But, you know, there's still two good, great competitions that go on in both markets um, and still continue to raise some really good commercial dollars with that. I mean, I think you could tell I have a real love for netball, even though this is something I wasn't raised with. We talked about this when you were giving the Tom Brock lecture, but the idea is quite uniquely different to something like, let's say, women's basketball in the US, uh, the WNBA, where the game is, you know, basketball essentially as played by the men's, whereas netball has a very separate and unique identity uh, between sports. Yeah, which I've always been a huge advocate for is that it's 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 its unique selling position and that it has no men competition. 
So the women athletes are the best athletes in the world at that sport. And there's not that, apart from um, artistic swimming, which is the new name for synchronised swimming, uh, I can't think of another sport that's played internationally, really, that only women do. Um, and there's a, I know there's a few gymnastics things, rhythmic gymnastics and stuff. But, you know, it, it is as a team sport like that. Now, it's interesting, it's really interesting in a modern world, is that netball's under huge pressure to make sure that it's got a genuine men's game and a men's pathway. And you kind of go, hang on, for 100 years we've had men's codes with no women's, you know, um, equal. Netball's had an opportunity equally for women. Where, where do you actually then think about a male game? which holds its back, hold it, holds its opportunities back to be part of the like of the Olympics where you need equality. Um, it probably doesn't quite get pay, played by enough countries um, at the really elite level um, and it doesn't have a genuine men's product are the two pieces of feedback we keep getting. I don't know if that's changed. It's a wee while since I've been there, but that's an interesting challenge for, for the powers that be at Netball in these modern times. I mean, that's, that's actually quite fascinating. I, I, if my daughter chose to play netball, I'd be quite happy with it. The capacity is there, but for these things that you're outlining, um, it, it would be interesting to see uh, programs into the U.S. where there is a population um, that could be uh, assisting in that sort of thing. But then at the end of the day, do you still have enough competitive nations to do so? But uh, let's, let's continue on. So you're, you're at netball and then the NRL. Let's talk about that. What's that evolution like? Yeah, I mean, my dad played rugby league for New Zealand. Um, I'd sat with him and watched Winfield Cup games, um, you know, every Sunday for my formative years. I had a deep understanding and and respect for the sport. Uh, And um, I needed a new career challenge. And, um, you know, sequencing as it it was um, ended up um, in the process to be appointed into the the Bulldogs role, the CEO of the Canary Wexham Bulldogs. Um, about 4,000 applicants, uh, which was the greatest gift that they could have given me to go through a process that was that robust and that large, uh, meant that, um, you know, there was no sort of tag of tokenism or, um, you know, there wasn't any of that. It was a genuine belief that I had the skills and capabilities to do um, the job and had four and a half years there. Um, it was truly, truly amazing um, experience. It's a club that has great history, amazing fans um, that come from a, a as multicultural background as you could possibly imagine. And um, it's tough. Rugby league's a tough sport. It's tough on the field. It's tough off the field. Um, it's very blue collar and it's supporter base. Um, there was lots of challenges in stepping into that role. It was more high profile. Um, the media overlay was more complex. I'd walked away from my network here in New Zealand where all those safe places to go and have conversations. I woke up in Sydney one morning and thought, goodness me, here I am. Um, who do I ring when I need help? I was lucky to quickly um, you know, make some friends and some good colleagues to, to be able to work through that. But Personally and professionally, it was it was a uh, an amazing time, um, and uh, there were certainly some really big challenges along the way. You know, because you're speaking at the Tom Brock is a time that I, and the content to which you spoke about was something that really stuck with me. Two separate stories going on at the same time. What happened in the club? The players embraced for you. I remember you telling them when they started calling you auntie. How much not just emotion, but how much trust and faith that the players and others in the club had with you, but then also putting up with the, frankly, what I would call abusive sledging that well, all of us face, but you more so being a public figure through online media. 
what is that like having those two separate experiences that couldn't be more disparate? Well, well, you actually raised exactly the point that I don't think people realise. The world of social media is not the world that you live in every day when you turn up to the office uh, and you can't make it so. Um, and equally, the people on social media don't see what's going on in the office and, and the, on the field and in the gym and um, in the environment and, and in the work that's actually going on. So it's, uh, it's life. Um, when it gets really serious, though, which it does, um, you do need an outlet. You do need a space, a safe space to have a conversation. And the way I always um, think about it is that I've got four or five trusted advisors. Uh, and if those trusted advisors tell me that I've got it wrong, uh, that's when I have a sort of a sleepless night and, uh, you know, where I get a bit, you know, sort of um, that anxious feeling. Um, but if some person on in the Twitter sphere, um, you know, gives me a hard time about something, you just have to shrug your shoulders and let it go. But if you if you ran strategy through um, Twitter or um, Instagram, um, you know, your strategy would, would, would be zigzagging all over the place. So you do have to get that balance right. Uh, I remember you talking about your relationships with Des and with Todd Greenberg at those times, and also uh, just the, the risk involved that you took in pioneering, and I do say pioneering, um, just education towards domestic violence um, and the partnerships that you made there, entrepreneurship within a culture, not just a, not just a sport. Yeah, and that's a really interesting one you raised, actually. We, we formed a partnership with White Ribbon, which is the Women's Domestic Violence Unit um, in Australia, and... Um, when we did it, uh, people said to me, you're mad, you're absolutely crazy, you'll have a domestic violence incident inside the club and then you'll look like idiots and you'll be like, what were you thinking? And the answer was, well, what it did by partnering with them is it taught us a lot of things. It helped educate our players, we had training for them. So, um, you know, it ends up being a really good thing uh, and certainly the education and knowledge of the club um, around the challenges of domestic violence were much stronger because of that relationship. And that is, it is something that I'm really proud of. Yeah, well, there's nothing like putting a name to something to actually to make that heard. Not just heard, but talked about. And, you know, you're talking about intergenerational um, domestic violence. You know, it's terrible, it shouldn't happen, but it's about being in an environment where it can break that habit and people can um, have honest conversations about around that not being acceptable behaviour. And so um, actually being able to be part of that journey um, and be able to be part of that learning was was really great for the club um, and certainly at a time where it had had some challenges, um, it, it put it in a much stronger place, there's no doubt about that. So it doesn't have to be that way. So it doesn't have to be rugby league forever either. You make it over to Rugby Australia. Walk us through that because that's its own journey. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was an amazing opportunity, a, a genuine international sport, um, you know, a, an international team that has enormous profile and respect on the world stage, the Wallabies, um, launching with a women's competition and international women's rugby, um, some real opportunities in the game. So it just, to me, it looked, looked fantastic. Um, you know, once again, an interview process that was, you know, openly talked about as being much more rigorous for me because I was a woman than if it had been for for just a, a man and, and the chairman's on record with that. Um, yeah, good place to start. Um, you know, there was some real, um, you know, opportunities uh, in, in that um, environment, um, certainly around some free-to-air broadcast coverage, which is not something that rugby had ever had since it had gone professional, um, and building a high-performance uh, network from that where a young um, you know, boy or girl could see their pathway into the Wallabies or Wallaroos up and through Super Rugby that was joined up. And actually, that is not something that rugby in this country had had ever. And it is what the most successful rugby countries in the world have had for a number of years. So last time we got to really sit down, not that we haven't spoken since then, but 
you were leaving Sydney and you were heading off to New Zealand. Let's talk about going home. What's going on and what have you been up to? Yeah, so Greg and I uh, loved our time in Australia. Uh, we had seven and a half years there. Um, it was fantastic. We um, we made lots of great friends. We had amazing experiences, um, but it was only ever an adventure for us. It was never the place that we were going to be permanently. And, and um, you know, sort of halfway through a, co- a crazy COVID environment, um, we decided to head back to New Zealand. Uh, and then um, um, Peter Muskimmon, who'd been the CEO of Sport New Zealand for um, about a dozen years, um, resigned. And so the opportunity became available. And that really appealed to me, whether it was in the community sports space where we want more people to be active and more young people to have opportunities, or whether that was winning medals on the world stage. Yeah, went through a process, got appointed uh, to be the CEO of um, Sport New Zealand, um, and then not long after that, Michael Scott resigned um, as the CEO of High Performance Sport New Zealand. They put me in as the acting um, for both organisations, and then that got confirmed just in the last couple of weeks, actually. So now group CEO of of the Sport New Zealand group, um, and um, I'm really enjoying it. It's been uh, an amazing 14 months, lots of um, energetic, passionate, incredible people that um, want to see good outcomes for New Zealand. And um, uh, and equally, you know, there are some real challenges, as I said at the beginning of this, this chat, that, you know, COVID has created some challenges around physical activity for people and what normal looks like these days. So um, there's, there's certainly lots to do. There's lots to keep me interested and inspired, and I'm really enjoying it. I mean, you are by definition a pro-pivoter to transfer and translate over multiple cultures. And I do think I should say that this is one of the more incredible stories to hear about because it is an international story. It's a multi-code, multi-sports story, and it's still going. I guess to cap, two questions. So let's do the first one first. What's the toughest hurdle you've had to overcome in your career? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, you know, people will immediately look at the Israel flower shoot that I faced at Rugby Australia and go, well, that was the toughest hurdle. And sure, that was. You know, finishing so publicly at Rugby Australia the way I did um, and, you know, um, you have to deal with that um, and how you pick yourself up and, and go again. So, you know, those are certainly two things that that were publicly really challenging. It's about, um, you know, your attitude and, and wanting to get out the best out of yourself. I mean, that's the only thing. People say, what's your aspiration? And I just say, well, when I... Um, when someone someday puts me in a box, um, I really just hope they say that she absolutely made the most of every opportunity. She was brave to step into opportunities when they're in front of her, backed herself to to do them, um, and um, gave it absolutely everything. And you know, I think in the experiences that I've had, um, you know, I'd like to think that's what that's what people would say. And um, you know, they've all been amazing experiences. And what's different? They've all had the fundamental. Uh, same element, which is that sport does great things for people. Um, And I get a real kick out of that every day. That's fantastic advice. And that that actually segues to that last question. Is there anything you wish you knew sooner, advice that you would have had received earlier or put into practice? Yeah, I, I think the thing that I wish I'd known when I was at school was that not the smartest people, the people that win ducks and the people that are that top in maths and English and science, aren't always the only people that succeed. Um, Soft skills, EQ, strong leadership, um, ability to read the room, authenticity, uh, all of these skills are equally as important um, in how you can build your leadership capabilities. Uh, And those are the skills that make up being a CEO. But the great skills you learn playing sport, 
you know, the the hard work, the the people management, the negotiation, the the failings, how you pick stuff up again, all of those good things are really great building blocks. Um, and um, yeah, CEOs just aren't the smartest people in the room. Um, in fact, they're often not the smartest people in the room, but they are the people that bring the team together that have the smartest people to get to the outcome. It's funny. I'd never believed that you would have believed that about yourself or about <laughs> others, but I guess you proved both myself and yourself wrong uh, in every positive way. So um, I think that's a great way to wrap the show. I can't thank you enough. Um, it is always a pleasure speaking with you, Aileen. Um, so firstly, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Spencer. It's great to chat again. Thanks for listening today. Lead from the Side is made in partnership with Ample, and thanks to our sponsors. More information about the show and our guests can be found in the show notes. You can follow the show on Twitter or LinkedIn at Lead from the Side, or myself on Twitter or LinkedIn at BallsOutPhD. If you want to contribute to the show, send us an email at leadfromtheside at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. See you next time, and remember to lead from the side.